Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. We've been in it for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we've got a few weeks to go. I want to op- uh, encourage you to bring your Bible to church um, or your smartphone. Open up your smartphone and click away and get to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10 in just a moment. One more announcement that I forgot to say. Uh, we are having a special guest speaker this first Wednesday, and you do not want to miss this guy. Uh, trust me. He's been here before a long, long time ago. When we first got into the building, he was here uh, in 2007. But it's been a long time since we've been able to have Donovan Kutsia. You're going to want to come hear him. He's a real blessing. And plus, we are also inviting our Norwood campus down here. So they've been talking about it. They were up, I was up there last week preaching. They were talking about it there. Uh, Wednesday night as well, I preached up there, and we talked about it again. So they're all planning to come, and if you're planning to come, you better get here early to get a good seat. Okay? Are you there? Hello? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Am I talking to anybody? <laughs> all right, so... Open your Bibles again, Malachi chapter 2. Let's stand together. We're going to read a few verses, then we'll sit down and talk about it. Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing that you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. To whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves. Everybody say those two words with me. Guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves, say it again, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that this is your word and we ask that we will hear you properly today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. May every ear be opened, every heart be opened, every mind be transformed and renewed through the preaching and teaching of your word. And most importantly, may we see Jesus. In his name, everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So I am talking to three groups of people today. The title of the message today, Bitter or Better, part three, single, stuck, or separated. Three groups of people. We're going to talk to singles. We're going to talk to married people who feel stuck, or maybe you don't feel stuck, but you've been through stuck moments. And separated people, divorced or getting separated or getting divorced. So this is not one of those messages where you can say, well, that wasn't for me. This is for everybody. We also want to welcome our online audience. So glad that you are joining us as well. Singles, stuck, or separated. Malachi addresses the people of Israel, and he asks them two very important questions. 
He says, don't we all have the same father? And don't we all have the same creator? In other words, aren't we a big family? As the people of Israel, Israel was called by God through Abraham to be a family. Not just a nation, but a family. Not just a religion, but a family. A family that would love each other and treat each other right. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And how we treat each other is of utmost importance to our Father. We're all in the family of God. If you're a believer today, if you're a Christian today, you are my brother or sister in Christ, and we got to care about each other, and we got to love each other. And he says, that's what we are, Israel. This is in the Old Testament. That's what we are. And he goes, if that's the case, why are we faithless to one another? To one another? Another translation, not the ESV, I think it's the NIV, says, why are we treacherous to each other? We're, tre we're, we're treating each other poorly, and we're profaning the covenant of our fathers. So there's a big problem in Israel. Uh, God has an issue with how they're treating each other. And we're talking today about relational bitterness. And I can think of no other area where we experience more bitterness than in the area of personal intimacy personal relationships. Some of you are here and you're single and you're, you're starting to get bitter about your singleness. Some of you are here and you're recently divorced and you're bitter about that divorce. And some of you are here and you're married and maybe you're in that moment, that time, that season where you just feel stuck and you're just in a season where you could get bitter. Bitter about the decision that you made so long ago. Bitter about who you're married to. Bitter about the fact that you feel like you have already abandoned the marriage or they have abandoned you emotionally or physically or whatever. And so here we are in this very difficult topic about interpersonal relationships, an area of our lives where if we would all confess that most of our bitterness comes from how people have treated us, especially the ones that we should be closest to. And Malachi has a problem with this relationship issue here in, in Israel. You guys are all brothers and sisters, and, and we got to treat each other better because we're all part of the family of God. Here's the problem. First problem that Israel was experiencing was mixed marriages. Mixed marriages. He says Judah has been faithless. How? He says he's been, uh, committed an abomination. Now, we all know <laughs> that in the Bible, there's like, there's like three big words for sin, right? There's like mistake, that's like lower level sin. There's like sin or transgression, that's like upper level sin. And then there's like high class sin, abomination. Right, that's like as big as it gets. So this is a big word. And he says an abomination is committed. What's the abomination? Judas profaned the sanctuary because here's what he's done. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. Here's what was happening. The men of Israel were leaving their Israelite wives going and finding pagan women and marrying them. Women who worshiped other gods. And not only were they doing that, but they were going to the pagan temple on Friday night with their pagan wives, and then they were coming to the sanctuary of the Lord on Saturday and worshiping God on Saturday. God says, I have a serious problem with that. You should not be marrying people of another religion. Now, let me just clarify something that some of you have heard. Actually, probably everybody's heard. You have probably heard that during the days of segregation in this country or during the days of slavery in this country, and even still today in some places, that people tell you from the pulpit 
that God is against interracial marriage. That God is against interracial marriage because of passages like this and other passages in Deuteronomy where God clearly tells his people, Israel, do not marry anybody of a foreign nation. Now, he did that because in the ancient world, your nationality was your religion. So it wasn't God against interracial marriages. God is not against interracial marriages. He's never been against interracial marriages. Here's what he is against. He's against interspiritual marriages. He knows that interspiritual marriage will cost you, will hurt you, will be a drain on your spiritual life, will lead you away from God, and will cause harm to your children. God is so serious about this that he actually ups the ante in verse 12. Look what he says. May the Lord, Malachi saying, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In other words, if you're going to produce these half-breed spiritual children, God has no use for them because they're going to be led astray by the pagan idolatry of their mothers or their fathers or whoever is not believing in the Lord. So number one, we're going to talk to you singles. Today, we're going to give some singles some love. How many singles we got in the house? If you're a single, say, oh, yeah. Nobody? All right, singles, raise your hand. Raise your hand, singles. Put it up high. Look around. Find them in church, hallelujah. <laughs> this is your chance. I'm here to help you. Dr. Love is in the house. Sing like we had like six people. That's just not true. I know there's a lot more. Some of you think it's like, I am not raising my hand. I don't care what he says. All right, I don't care if you raise your hand. I'm talking to you. Singles, number one point for, is for you. Singles, guard the sacredness of your singleness. Guard the sacredness of your singleness. The world tells singles, have fun, go out and party, have a good time. Date a lot of different people. Find out what you like, what you don't like. Have sex with multiple partners. Figure out if you're sexually compatible. And when you're sexually compatible, then you can take it to another level. Watch every romantic comedy. Within the first five minutes, they meet each other, they go to bed, and then they figure out the relationship after that. That's the world's message. Sexual compatibility. Can we just talk about sexual compatibility for about 15 seconds? I will solve the sexual compatibility for you in five seconds or less. Ready? Are you a man? Is she a woman? You're sexually compatible. <laughs> five seconds from my fifth grade education. Hallelujah. That's it. That's all you need to know. This sexual compatibility myth is just absolutely ridiculous. Take it from somebody who's been married 14 years in 16 days. I know that the sex gets better as you go along. And it's not, it's not the determining factor of your life, okay? Your singleness is not a chance to partay and get busy with a bunch of different people. God says your singleness is sacred. It's holy. Use this time in your life to build yourself up in your faith, to grow in Christ, to develop good spiritual disciplines, good work habits, good friendships that will last 
Start building yourself up because you have an opportunity right now in singleness that you will not have in marriage. And hear me, you do not have to be married to make a huge difference in the kingdom of God. We, we buy into this lie in the church that only married people are really Christian. Like only married people have really attained to the Christian standard. That's ridiculous. This whole faith was started by a single man. Jesus never got married. He made the biggest difference in world history. History revolves around him, A.D. and B.C. Uh, it was also propagated by another single man named Paul the Apostle who never married. He spread the message of Jesus all across the world, and he was single. So you do not have to be married to make a huge difference. Guard the sacredness of your singleness. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, an unmarried man, he's so excited about singleness, he says, an unmarried man can spend his time doing what? Say it with me. The Lord's work. And thinking how to please him. Singles, your singleness is not for you to have lots of sex with different people. It's to serve God. And you have an opportunity to build yourself up and grow. Guard the sacredness of your singleness because the most important decision of your life, friend, is who is going to be your God. That's the biggest decision you can ever make. And the second biggest decision is, who's going to be your spouse? And, and maybe for some of you, the decision is no spouse. Maybe for right now, maybe for life. You don't know, but it's a gift. Here's what Ma Matthew chapter 19, um, Jesus says, you don't have to turn there, you don't have to look at it. Uh, I'll just summarize. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that singleness is actually a gift from God. To some people, God has given them the gift to be single. Now, you are inundated with all these messages about uh, why you should get married, to be happy, to be fulfilled, and that's a problem. It's a lie. you got to guard the sacredness of your singleness. So two ways that you guard the sacredness of your singleness. Number one from the book of Malachi is, and if you're taking notes, fill in the blank, because these are huge notes. These are very important. Never settle for an unsafe spouse. Never settle for an unsafe spouse. Some of you are single and you're like stressed out. You're like, I don't know if I'll ever get married. I just can't find anybody. And you're a Christian, and you're like, it's very important to me that I find a Christian. And now you're starting to think, well, maybe I don't need necessarily a Christian, but somebody who might become a Christian. Never settle. Can I say it as clear as I can? Never settle for an unsaved spouse. God is totally against it. Totally against it. And I want to let you know that I've experienced in my family's life that when a believing Christian marries an unbeliever, disaster inevitably happens. I have family members who could tell you about this. I have friends who could tell you about this. They could stand up here and they could weep before you and tell you just how miserable it made their lives. And I have heard the excuses. I have heard the excuses. Number one excuse is, well, pastor, we've talked about it and they don't really mind that I'm serious about my faith. They will. They will mind when the little kids come along and you gotta make a decision about how you're gonna raise those kids. You gotta make a decision about what kind of stories are you gonna tell them? You gotta tell your kids that Noah was real, Moses was real, David was real, and God is real, and then your spouse is gonna say, well, you don't really have to take that that seriously. I don't, and I'm fine. And you're gonna create mixed breed children who are totally confused about the most important thing in the world, their understanding of God, faith, and who they are. Don't make this mistake. Second excuse that I've heard. Second excuse I've heard. Well, they believe in God. Listen, friend, 95% of America believes in God. 
95% of America believes in God. Muslims believe in God. Don't go marrying a Muslim. Just because they believe in God does not necessarily mean that they believe in Jesus. You gotta check the faith level. Do they love Jesus? Do they go to church? When they go to church, do they get engaged? Are they happy? Are they, are they glad to be there? Or do you have to drag them there? Are they miserable there? Are they happy in Jesus? Or are they just going through the motions? You gotta check this. Do they have a Bible? Do they bring the Bible to church? Don't, don't, don't think I didn't see that hardly any of you brought your Bible to church today. All right, do they bring their Bible to church? Do they have a, a Bible that's falling apart? Because a Bible that's falling apart is usually in the hand of somebody whose life isn't falling apart. Now, that was amazing preaching right there, and you didn't say anything. Dang. Dang. Got to start giving my own amen tracks through the sound system. Hallelujah. Never settle for an unsafe spouse. More than just believing in God. Um, third excuse. Well, pastor, I'm just going to pray for them and witness to them and share Jesus to them. And they're going to watch my life. And eventually they're going to come to know Jesus. Okay, let me say this as clear as I can. You won't. You won't. You won't. You won't. You won't. You won't, you won't, you won't. I'm gonna do this until it's awkward. You won't, you won't, you won't, you won't. But I'll pray in fast, you won't. But I'm a really good, you won't. But I really know the Bible, you won't. It will never happen. I have, I have case studies in my life that could show you that just, it doesn't happen. You cannot expect God to bless something that you willfully entered into in disobedience. You can't do it. I don't care how much you fast, pray. I don't care how holy you are. I don't care how sexy you are. I don't care if you rob him of sex for the rest of his life until he bows in the knee to Jesus. It will not work. You gotta do it God's way. And God's way will be the best way that will bless you. Now, I know I'm talking to some people that you're married to an unsaved spouse, but you happen to get saved after you got married. Well, that's a different situation. And in that situation, you just stay with the marriage. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that your marriage is sanctified by your presence. And that you should not leave. But if the unbeliever says, I want to leave, then you can let him leave. And scripturally and before God, you are free to marry again. But that's not the best option. The best option is to stay together. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Listen to me very carefully about this because you just, I know that there's a lot of you, you're gonna still think, I can do it, I can do it. And some of you will think this because you've already made bad decisions, you've already gone to bed with them, or you're already living with them. And, and if that's the case, I think I still have a chance with you. Stop. Stop today. On the way home from church, tell them, no more. I'm moving back with my parents. I'm getting out. I don't care what it takes. We got to fix this and make it right. Please. You're going to hurt yourself and your children. And I always see it this way. That yes, there is a spiritual influence in those marriages. And the spiritual influence is always this way. The unbeliever stays an unbeliever and the believer becomes an unbeliever. That's the only influence I've seen. I don't know if you've seen otherwise, but I, I just haven't seen it. Maybe one in a thousand. Solomon was the wisest man that had ever lived. He wrote the book of Proverbs. 
It's all about finding the right, it's all about making wise decisions. And, and a lot of it is about finding the right person, Proverbs. So if you're single, you should read the book of Proverbs like 40 times. And, and, and Solomon says that Solomon, who writes the book and talks about finding the right person, doesn't listen to his own advice. And he is the king of Israel when Israel is at its peak, when they're rich and they're healthy and they're safe and they're secure. And what happens is this momentous moment in 1 Kings chapter 11 changes everything and they start to decline nationally. And here's how it starts Solomon had 700 wives. What on earth? But they were, they were princesses, which means that they were political alliance marriages. He was trying to secure his kingdom with these women. But not only 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was the original Wilt Chamberlain. And, <laughs> and his wives, everybody say these next four words with me. His wives turn away his heart. It does not matter how smart you are. It does not matter how powerful you are. It does not matter how blessed you are. It does not matter how godly you are. Even Solomon could not stand under the influence of pagan wives. And if you think you can, good luck. Guard the sacredness of your singleness. Well, what if I break up with them and, they, and then I never find anybody? I think it's better to be single than to be married to an unbeliever. You'll be happier. Trust me, you will be happier. Okay. Second thing you can do, singles, to guard the sacredness of your marriage, see through the superficial. We are inundated in a generation today with airbrushed images of fake people. Go through the grocery store uh, checkout line and you will know what I'm talking about. Those people are just... <laughs> their hair's all blown out. Like Nobody looks like that, friend. Nobody, actually, like three people on the planet look like that. Let me just tell you, singles, all three of those people are out of your league. <laughs> Get through the superficial. <laughs> we, we were inundated with it. I want that girl with the hot body. I want that guy with the muscles and, and the good looks and the hair and all that stuff. It's just superficial nonsense. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Proverbs 31:30, charm is, everybody say it, deceptive. And beauty, say the next three words, does not last. <laughs> we know that's true. We know that's true. Come on. Beauty, I don't care how beautiful they are right now, it will not last. Let me, let me just tell you, in the law of physics, <laughs> gravity always wins. Gravity always wins. Everything that you think is so tight and up now will be fading and moving south gradually. It starts at the age of about 35 and it just gets worse. You know what it is? It's your body saying, hey, I know we're going to the grave anyway. I'm just getting a head start. <laughs> your, your hair, you ever notice how your hair leaves? It moves, it migrates south. You don't lose hair. It just moves to different parts of your body that you never knew hair could come out of. I'm looking at my body. I'm like, get back where you came from. What are you doing down there? Beauty fades. It doesn't last. Do you understand that your nose and your ears never stop growing? How sick is that? Like even if you make it to 95, you're going to look like a circus freak. 
Dumbo and Pinocchio in one person. <laughs> it's, it doesn't last. But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. S- some of you are waiting for super spiritual, super hunk. Stop. Some of you are waiting for super spiritual, super model. Stop. Find somebody who's reasonably attractive <laughs> and loves Jesus and goes to church and marry the sucker. Do I have to draw a map for you? You go to Info Central, you ask them for a single small group, and you show up and you pray and you find yourself a, a prayer partner of the opposite sex. It's that easy. Marry a Christian. Is it gonna be a perfect marriage? No. Gonna be a hard marriage? Yes. But at least you will have a foundation on which you are both accountable to. Um, the average age of marrying in today's generation is getting higher and higher because people are scared. And some of you dudes around here at Waters Church, you got beautiful girlfriends and you're dragging your feet. I don't know. I don't know if I should do it. You know, is she the one? Is she the one? I haven't seen the angel show up and tell me she's the one. I haven't found the Bible verse to tell me she's the one. I need a word from the Lord that she's the one so I know I'm not making a mistake. All you're looking for is somebody else to blame if it doesn't work out. That's all you're looking for. Marry her. Make an honest woman of her. Make an honest man of him. Get it going. I mean, seriously, look, you're getting, you're getting into your mid-30s and you're not married yet? Did they not teach you math in college, in high school? You only have so many years. Like, you get married in your mid-30s, you wait five more years because you want to have fun and go on cruises and vacations, and then you're going to start to have kids in your 40s? Are you crazy? Do you want to be walking down that little girl down the aisle with your walking stick? <laughs> get moving. What are you waiting for? And I've heard the excuses. There's not many Christian singles my age that are good looking. Open your stinking eyes at Waters Church. There's a lot of good looking singles here. There's a lot of good looking singles there. The reason why I can say that is because my wife knows I love her. (laughs) And me and my wife are like, man, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of good people. Good looking people at Waters Church, eligible. Come on, singles now. Raise your hand again. Come on. Let's give you another chance. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't want the humor to lose the point, friends. This is the most important, the second most important decision of your life. Don't settle for an unsafe spouse and get past the superficial. Okay, singles, you can breathe. You can breathe because it's, that's it. Second point we're going to talk about in just a moment, but we've got to first address the second problem in Malachi chapter 2. The second problem is divorce. God says this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer rewards the offering, uh, regards the offering or accepts it. Uh, in other words, in, in Malachi's day, and we'll read, this about, we'll read about this in a few weeks, their crops were failing, their economy was tanking, their national security was failing, and they didn't know why. So they go to the church, and they pray, and they weep, and they cry, and they offer God all kinds of offerings to kind of get his favor. And God says, I don't care how many offerings you give me. I don't care how much you cry. I don't care how many tears you shed. I'm not going to regard it. And they say, why? What are you talking about, God? We're doing our best. 
He says, no, you're not. Here's the problem. I'm not going to listen to you because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by, everybody say the last word, covenant. She's your companion. She's your wife by covenant. And the Lord is witness to you. But witness about this. Married people, if you're taking notes, fill in the blank. Guard the sacredness of your marriage. Your marriage is sacred. If you are in a marriage where you're a believer and not a believer, okay, disregarding how you got in now, you're in. It's sacred. And if you're the believer in the marriage, you got to do your best to make sure that that marriage works. What is, what is God's meaning for marriage? What is God's meaning for marriage? All right? That's a big, that's a big deal. Because we can do a number of things when it comes to marriage. We can watch the insanity in Hollywood and, and see what, what these, basically these adolescents are doing, jumping in and out of marriages. Or we can listen to our friends who may or may not be Christian and may or may not be really devoted to Jesus and jumping in and out of marriage. Or we can listen to what God says. I think we should listen to what God says. And in no other passage in the Bible is marriage more highly elevated than in Malachi chapter 2. He says, I won't even listen to you because you're not keeping your marriage vows. I'm not even going to listen to you until you start doing that right. You say, Pastor, this is an Old Testament principle. No, it's not. It's a God principle. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells the men, honor your wives as the weaker partner. Honor your wives as the weaker partner. In other words, something that is unheard of in the ancient world is to honor women when they used to subject women. The Bible tells them to honor them, lift them up, build them up, care for them, and respect them. And he says this, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Sometimes God's not going to listen to you because you treat your wife like garbage. It's got to stop. Because here's God's meaning for marriage. Take notes, please. Number one, marriage is not a moment, but a lifelong agreement. Somebody say agreement. Notice the word covenant. Okay. Before ladies and young girls especially listen, before you fantasize about who you're going to marry and you fantasize about the big day and you fantasize about your dad walking down the aisle and the dress you're going to wear and the bridesmaid's dress and all that stuff that you've been dreaming about, whatever, because you watch Disney movies, and, and you think about all the things that that guy's going to do for your life and how he's going to fulfill you and the little hole in your heart is going to be filled forever and you're never going to be lonely again, you're never going to be sad again, you're never going to be depressed again because that guy is going to be everything that you could ever imagine. Let me just tell you that that's just not true. And secondly, that the Bible never paints an emotional picture of marriage. It always paints just this very legal, this legal picture of marriage. Notice the terms. The Lord was witness. That's a legal term. Covenant. That's a legal term. We don't talk about covenants today, but we should. We've got to talk about it because agreements are what marriages are all about. So that when you come down to that altar, it doesn't matter how many people are in the audience, what the bridesmaids look like, what the groomsmen look like, what the pastor looks like. It doesn't matter where it is or how it got done. What matters is those words that came out of your mouth, we call them vows. You are agreeing to love them. I agree 
to love you and choose you and hold you and hug you and care for you come hell or high water for better or for what? Worse. For richer or? For sickness and? Hell. So it doesn't matter what's going to happen because you can't predict the future. What matters is that you made a decision, you made agreements, and God is witness before that. It's not about the pastor or who's there. It's about the fact that God is watching and he takes your marriage vows extraordinarily serious. It's an agreement. It's an agreement. Take the emotional component out of it. Say, that's not very romantic. I know. You'll never see this in a Jennifer Aniston movie. I get it. But you will find it in the Bible. And the Bible is a firm foundation. Okay? It's an agreement. And, uh, and, then, and then God says, I love this. He says, she is your companion. Do you know why I love that? Because here's God being the total parent. The word, comparing, the, the word uh, companion in the Hebrew can also be translated friend. So God is saying, she's your friend. Hear me, husbands. Your wife is your friend. Now, do friends fight? Yes. But friends make up. Do friends get into disagreements? Absolutely. But friends do something. They, they grow up, they make up, and then they move on. That's a, that's a formula for a successful marriage. Grow up, make up, and move on. You know, I have kids, my wife and I, and every once in a while they'll tell us about their friends, and then we'll see that their friends don't come around for a while. And we'll say, well, why isn't your friend coming around? Why aren't you hanging out with so-and-so? And they'll say, well, we had an argument. And so my wife and I will be responsible parents because here's what responsible parents do. Pay attention. We don't call the parent of the other kid. We don't fight our kids' battles. I wish I got some amens for that, but whatever. <laughs> we tell our kid, grow up, make up, and move on. Because a good friend is hard to find. Yeah? A good friend is hard to find. And here's what God is saying to the men of Israel. I don't care if you don't like her anymore. I don't care if you have arguments. I don't care if you have disagreements. Grow up, make up, make out and move on. Like some people tell me, oh, we don't ever have an argument. What? You don't ever fight? Why not? Makeup sex is the best sex in marriage, man. <laughs> you gotta have some fights so you can make up. Hallelujah. All right, never mind. Number two. Number two, God's meaning for marriage. God is concerned with the results of your marriage. So you think about the day, and, and Americans spend $50 billion a year on wedding days. I wish we would start saving some of that money for marital counseling. Uh, you're concerned about the day. God's concerned about the result. Did he not make them one? This is a total ripoff from Genesis 2. Malachi is just lifting stuff from the Bible now. <laughs> and he's like, there, here's what it says in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall, what's to say? Say these last three words with me. Become one flesh. The most ignored Bible verse in marriage today. Right there. Become one flesh. You are in the, if you are married, you are in the process by which God makes you one. And it's a process. When you come to the altar before the eyes of God and legally you're one, 
and before the eyes of the state as well. But then you enter into the process by which you will morph into each other for the rest of your lives until death do you part. So let me just say a couple of points under this, if you're taking notes. Number one, marriage is meant to change you. Your marriage is designed to change you. So if somebody is telling you in your marriage, if, somebody, if the person that you're married to is bugging the life out of you because they keep telling you something that's wrong with you, can I just offer a suggestion? Instead of you getting mad about it, maybe you should listen to it. Maybe your wife or your husband is the only person in your life who sees that gaping hole in your character and is willing to take the shots necessary to confront you about it. And everybody else in your life knows it's true about you, but they're just too scared to tell you about it. But God bless your spouse, who you have been hammering and getting mad at for years about it, is the only one willing you to tell you the truth so that you can become something better than what you currently are. Because here's the problem with all of us. We think we're pretty good. <laughs> but we don't see ourselves from the outside. And your spouse does. And so they're talking to you, and guys, because I, I think that this goes more mer women to men. They're always, you know, they have no problem telling us what's wrong with us. But some of you guys got to be a little bit more honest now and be willing to take the shots and say, Honey, there are some things that I kind of get upset about. And just be a man and sleep on the couch for a few nights if necessary. <laughs> Better to be honest and fight than hold it in and harbor a grudge and grow bitter. Fight it out. You got to become one. Can I say about me and Cheryl? Can I say this? We're totally different people than we were when we got married. And both of us are different, not because of you people, not because of this church, but because of each other. Who I am today is the result of Cheryl's hard work. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. She's always like, I could never divorce you because you were too much work to get you this far. <laughs> and it's true. This is why singles, married people are more attractive to you. Because somebody has already done the hard work. So it's absolutely disgusting that you chase after a married person because that's robbing somebody not just of their love and their friend and their companion and breaking the covenant. It's also robbing them of all the hard work that went into that spouse. Find your own project and get busy. <laughs> God's concerned with the results of your marriage and it takes time, and you are in the process of becoming. You are in the process of changing. You are in the process of changing, and it's meant to change you. He says also, did he not make them one with the portion of the Spirit? This is huge. You need the Holy Spirit in your marriage, and that if you're a Christian, when you got married, the Holy Spirit entered into that covenantal relationship. The Holy Spirit is there to morph you and change you and transform you and chisel you down and work on you because you need work. Here's what I see a lot of single people do, a lot of young couples do. Pay attention. They come to church before the marriage. And they come to church every single Sunday. And I see this happen. This happens all the time at Water Church. They come to church every single Sunday because they want me to see them sitting in the pews so that when they ask me to marry them, I'll say yes. And then I marry them, and then I never see them again. It's disgusting. You're using the church, and you're manipulating me, 
and you're making a fatal mistake for your marriage. Because here's what I always hear. I always hear five years down the road, they're having problems and they're getting divorced. Of course you are. Of course you are. You made the fatal mistake. You thought that you needed Jesus to get married. No, friend. You needed Jesus to get married. You also need Jesus to stay married. For heaven's sakes. Uh, 14 years of marriage in 16 days. 14 years of marriage. I needed Jesus a heck of a lot more after I got married than before I got married. And that's why God gives you the Holy Spirit. The, the most abused and inaccurate statistic you've ever heard. The most abused and inaccurate statistic you've ever heard is Christians get divorced just as often as non-Christians. It's not true. Recent data has revealed just how faulty the findings were. Because they would ask some dude who had gotten divorced, what's your faith? And the guy who had not been to church in 30 years would say, well, I was raised Baptist, so I guess I'm a Christian. No, no, you're not a Christian. You think you are, but you're not. They did new studies, and the University of Connecticut did this study, recent study. They found that the key contributor to making a marriage last, the key defining difference between often divorced and seldom divorced was church and, and religious commitment. Couples who did three things, couples who did three things, went to church, prayed, and read their Bibles regularly, not every other week, every week, all the time, committed. In other words, doing the things that Jesus actually tells us to do, okay? Not to become a Christian, but as a Christian. They had a 38% divorce rate, whereas everybody else who didn't do those things, a 60% divorce rate. So if you find somebody who is a Christian and you marry them and you both commit to church and you both commit to prayer and you both commit to reading your Bibles and growing daily in the Lord, you have a far better shot than you think. Don't fall for just some stupid statistic that gets thrown around like a wet blanket. It's not true. Number three, if you're taking notes, God's meaning for marriage. Ma marriage is not about what I want, plan, or hope for. I love this question in, in verse 15. I love this. He says, what was the one God seeking out of your marriage? <laughs> you might have dreams. You might have wants. You might have hopes. You might have plans. God says, I don't care. I'm not looking for you to get the white picket fence house. I don't care if you have two-car garage. I don't care if your kids go to Harvard. I care that you have godly kids. And a marriage takes God, makes God, is, is meant to make godly children. You say, we can't have children. You can have spiritual children. You can make an investment in people younger than you. Even if you don't have children biologically, you can have them spiritually. And, and some of those relationships are stronger than any, anything else. Even Paul says to Timothy, you are my true son. You are my true son. He didn't biologically give birth to him or, or produce him. He loved him in the Lord. So God's looking for mar uh, godly offspring from your marriage. So two things about this. Uh, number one, your happiness is not at the top of God's priority list when it comes to marriage. I'm not very happy in my marriage. So what? Who told you I had to be happy all the time? Who told you that? Disney? Stop watching Frozen. Okay, number two. You're thinking short-term. God's thinking long-term. Godly offspring. In other words, not just your kids, but your grandkids. Are, there, are your grandkids going to grow up and say, I am so proud of my grandparents. They stayed together. 
they stayed together. My, all, all four sets of my parents, stayed, uh, grandparents, uh, Cheryl's and mine, stayed together. That's awesome. That's rare. But I'm here telling you that, not to boast about me, I'm here telling you that, that the reason why we're still married is in large part because they stayed married. And our parents both stayed married. Nothing helps a child more than you sticking it out. Can I say something that's very politically incorrect? Incorrect. And nobody's ever going to tell you this, so pay attention. Since Sandy Hook, since Sandy Hook, there have been 34 school shootings in America. Since Sandy Hook. And everybody gets on the news, and they get on CNN, and they get on Fox News, and they talk about three things. And we all know what they talk about. What do they talk about? Gun control, mental illness, and bullying. And we got to stop it. we got to fix this. we got to do this. And they'll tell you all those things. Fine. I agree. Let's try to fix all those things. Do you know what 33 out of 34 of those shooters had in common? They all came from a broken home. They all came from a home where mom and dad were no longer together. And we have been fooling ourselves and lying to ourselves for generations, saying that the kids are more resilient than we think, and they're not. They need mom, they need dad. And every sociological study, every sociological study will back up what I'm saying. The reason why you don't hear about it is because the people on the right don't want to stay married, and the people on the left don't want to stay married. Everybody wants to serve themselves. And nobody wants to say the truth. And we can vote a Republican in, and we can vote a Democrat in, and it'll still be a mess if we don't get serious about the fact that marriage is not about your personal happiness, but about what's coming out of that marriage, godly children and generational blessings that mom and dad stayed together, and I will too. We got to get real. We got to get truthful because this lying, this nonsense in our culture is really just selfishness. It's just putting yourself above everybody else. And some of you are in a position in your marriage where you're going through a long season of unhappiness. Stick it out. You're not always going to stay unhappy. And even if you do, you die. <laughs> Amen. I'm dying. Thank you, Jesus, for that whole death till us part, till death to us part clause. I mean, you gotta, you gotta back up, friend. Back up and get a wide-angle view on your marriage. Get a wide-angle view. It started happy. It's not happy right now, but it could end happy. It could end happy. You could get to that place again. It may be a little work. So number four, if you're taking notes, marriage is work. He says, guard yourselves. And the same word guard here shows up in the Garden of Eden where God gives the garden to the man. And he says, I want you to, I want you to work it and I want you to keep it. I underline these two words because these are the same word in Hebrew. You got it. And here's what, here's what God is saying, kind of um, so subvertly here. The same amount of work, men, that you put into your jobs, you got to put into your marriage. You got to work it. So you got to do some spiritual stuff like praying, fasting, going to church, reading your Bible. That's work, yeah, sure. But you're working your garden, your, your wife, your, your marriage. You're working that. And then, so do the spiritual stuff, but can I say something else? Do the practical stuff. Go see a counselor. Go to therapy. Talk to one of our elders. I don't care what you got to do. Take pills. I don't care what it takes. I really don't. I really don't because this is so serious. 
and we're looking at the, the, the erosion of American culture, and, and, and everybody wants you to give somebody else to blame, whether it be President Obama or George W. Bush or Congress. It's not their fault. It's us. We've got to guard this thing. It's sacred. It's sacred. Verse 16, just, just so you know, just so we remind ourselves. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, he says, covers his garment with violence. Covers his garment with violence. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Your wife is your friend. Your husband is your friend. Companion, covenant, agreement, work. Married people, you can take a breath. Divorce people. I only have one thing to say to you. Divorce people. Now, Malachi chapter 216 and every other translation says this. And you know, and, and people who don't even go to church know this verse. I hate divorce. It doesn't say it in the Hebrew, uh, in the ESV, because it's a very strange Hebrew preposition. But nonetheless, I want to let you know, divorce people, God doesn't hate you. He hates divorce. He doesn't hate you. He hates divorce because of what divorce does to people. It hurts people, and it hurts children, and it hurts society. That's why he hates it. Because divorce has taken the easy way out, the selfish way out. Some of you are divorced. You were either left, and you feel awful about it. God doesn't hate you. Some of you made it happen, and what you did was wrong, and God hated it, but he doesn't hate you. Uh, I think that there are three biblical warrants for divorce, and only three. Sexual morality. But if there is sexual morality, you also need to know that there's also such a thing as forgiveness. And if you get divorced because of sexual morality, please note that God still hates that divorce. So I think you should try to forgive and work it out. Don't come to me and say, hey, they cheated on me. I can get out now. Why not first think about reconciliation? Second thing is abandonment. If you're a Christian married to a non-Christian and they leave, let them. Scripturally, you're not bound. And the third thing, violence. And there's really no one verse that talks about this, but I think if you read the Bible, you can know that if somebody's beating somebody, you can get out of the marriage, for heaven's sakes. We don't need some one verse to say that. It's all over the Bible, all right? But God doesn't hate divorced people. In John chapter 4, verse 4, it says this about Jesus. Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's the only place where it says that he had to go. He had to go somewhere. It's the only place. Why did he have to go through Samaria? And this is the only verse I'm going to share from John 4. Do you know why? Because in John chapter 4, he goes through Samaria, he sits at a well, and he meets a woman who he knew was going to be there. And she was five, she was a five-time divorced woman. Five. Scarlet letter, the whole deal. And Jesus goes to the well, and he doesn't judge her or condemn her. He loves her. And he saves her. And he, and he goes to Samaria. He had to go because he wanted to hunt this poor woman down. And if you're divorced today, that same Jesus wants to come and save you. If you're divorced, you need to know the faithful, covenantal friend of heaven.